0: Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And I'm sitting here in the podcast studio today with Tony Anderson, our General Manager. Hey, Tony. Hey, Rachel. And we've spent really a lot of time on this podcast talking about energy issues and the electric industry, but we are way more than an electric provider because we're a cooperative. And so that's really what we want to focus on today, what it means to be a cooperative and and kind of how that model works and what, what we can do better and, and, and how, to, how to best enact that model. Cooperatives around the world generally operate according to the same core seven principles. And just in case everyone doesn't know it out there listening, I want to just really quickly list those for you. Um, the first is voluntary and open membership. Second, member democratic member control. So you, you get to vote and choose who represents you on our board. The third is members' economic participation. Fourth, autonomy and independence, which, which basically just means if we enter into any sort of an agreement with another organization, it has to be a done in a way that maintains democratic control by our members. The fifth is providing education, training, and information to our members and other stakeholders. So that's things like this podcast. Uh, the sixth principle is cooperation among cooperatives. And the seventh principle is concern for community. So joining us today to talk about cooperatives is someone that Tony and I both think very highly of and someone who is a a lover of cooperatives. Adam Schwartz, the founder and principal of The Cooperative Way, a consulting firm dedicated to assisting cooperative businesses to succeed. Adam has served cooperatives across various industries for over 20 years. He provides strategic guidance for cooperative boards, employees, and members seeking to better utilize cooperative principles to serve their communities. In addition, Adam has done a lot of work with electric cooperatives, including working for several years at the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, or NRECA. So thank you for joining us today, Adam.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: So, Adam, just to get us started, can you just talk about what it is about the cooperative business model that made you want to devote your career to helping co-ops succeed?
1: Well, for me, the cooperative business model is the best business model on earth. Because it is owned by the members that provide the, the good of the service. So there's a, a perfect, uh, in sync attitude that uh, happens within a, a co-op. Uh, there are no outside, uh, shareholders whose, uh, objective in investing in the, in the business is simply uh, to make money. Uh, the investors in the co-op are the owners of the co-op who use the goods of the service. So uh, in the case of Cherryland, um, all of your owners are the people who are receiving electricity, uh, from you. And I just think that it just makes more sense to have businesses owned and operated uh, in that method. And there are co-ops that exist uh, throughout the country and around the world that really serve every possible need uh, that you could think of.
2: And and you've worked with a lot of those uh, different types of cooperatives, farm cooperatives, dairy cooperatives, grain cooperatives. Is any one better at the seven cooperative principles than the other?
1: You know, I I could not say that there's, you know, one sector that's, you know, better. I I would say that there are some types of co-ops that maybe need to keep them a little bit more um, front and center uh, in their operation. Uh, For instance, there's a wonderful worker co-op called Equal Exchange. And what they do is they import coffee, tea, uh, uh, chocolate, and sugar from developing countries, from co-ops in those developing countries. And they pay those farmers a fair trade price so that the farmer uh, can make a living, a sustainable wage, uh, doing their work. And Equal Exchange is owned by the workers. There's roughly 120 employee owners that that run the business. So uh, in that case, the the employees have to have a a high degree of working knowledge of what a cooperative is uh, because it is their livelihood. It's the the way the business is is organized. But I've seen very high-functioning co-ops uh, in all different sectors, in the electric co-op sector, credit unions, uh, you know, people might be able to tell from my accent that I'm originally from New York, uh, and in New York City, there are three million people that live in housing co-ops, because uh, that was the way that people could have safe, reliable, and affordable housing. So there are high-performing co-ops uh, in, in all sectors uh, of our country.
0: So when we think specifically about electric co-ops, like kind of what do you think electric co-ops are doing really well right now when it comes to enacting the cooperative principles?
1: Uh, well, I think, one first and foremost, every cooperative has to, has to be in the business that they're in the business of. And what I mean by that is that whatever the product or the good is that, that you're selling uh, to your members, you, you better do that well. And very well, uh, this, this is a business, and if you don't do it well, you're not going to to survive. So, the in the electric co-op, obviously, the core commodity there is electricity, uh, and you have to do that in a capable, reliable, and affordable manner, uh, and keep outages to a minimum, and uh, and service levels at a very high level. And where where I think that you know some co-ops could could do better is that over time they have morphed from being really showcasing the fact that they're a co-op uh, to being really good utilities. Uh, and a big part of my work is to uh, get uh, electric co-ops uh, to see the value once again in emphasizing the fact that they're cooperative and that they are owned by the members. And as the electric industry is undergoing one of the largest changes uh, since, since Edison figured out how to produce uh, central station power. Uh, I think that's more important than ever. Uh, we have members uh, of our electric clubs, and we should call them members and treat them as members, but we also need to treat them as customers, uh, as if they had a choice in who their electric provider uh, is, because while they may not have that choice right now or readily easily, my uh, might think that they will in the future. And so I see that using these the co-op principles that you you know announced in the beginning, Rachel, as a real strategic advantage, that a real differentiator between us and for-profit businesses, and for that matter, nonprofit uh, businesses as well. Uh, and uh, what I try to do is uh, find ways to, to put those principles to
2: life. What specifically one or two things are cooperatives doing to look like a utility versus a cooperative? Uh,
1: well, when they sort of just treat their members as, as customers and not as members as well. Uh, and they're not taking into account uh things like the democratic member control and they're not encouraging uh, members to participate uh, in elections or to have a, a role or they they cease cease to participate uh in cooperating with other co-ops uh, which is principle six uh, and they just sort of morph into being uh, a utility uh and are not very vibrant in in their approach and being connected uh, with their members in a way that the, you know, the times I think increasingly
0: call for. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, Adam, too. So two things that I was thinking of as you were talking. One is that we have a kind of a rule here at Trayland that you can't call the people we serve customers. We don't, that's, that is a, that is not allowed. And we work really, really hard to make sure our employees call the members. And that sounds sim- like just a s- kind of silly thing, but it's not silly at all because it is a mindset of the people who work at or who serve the, co-op as board members to really reiterate that they're not customers. They are members, and that is they have to be treated differently.
1: Absolutely, and I could not agree with you more. And when I work with individual co-ops and I hear them use the word customer, I say, who are you talking about? (laughs) uh, I think uh, there was a wonderful book written many years ago, uh, Don't Split the Small Stuff, uh, and it's all small stuff. Uh, I I love that book, uh, except for the title. Uh, I think sweating the small stuff, like what we call the members, is critically important. And it's a lot of the little things that we can do that are ultimately going to make a difference in uh, how the members perceive the organization and their sense of ownership of the organization. And we all know that if you own something, uh, you treat it differently. And uh, for those who doubt my logic on that, think about if you've ever rented a car. You certainly treat your rental car differently than the car you own. So we want to instill in in co-op owners uh, that sense of ownership, that this is their business, they have a stake in it, uh, and uh, they should be working uh, to demand a high level of service from us uh, but also give a high level of commitment in in supporting the co-op as well.
2: So what are some good examples of co-ops doing specific things to make their customers, their members, feel like they're, they belong to a cooperative
1: right what are well, the top performing you
2: know, what, co-ops doing?
1: Yeah so you know, I think one of those, those things is that, that you just you maintain uh, and do your best to maintain a high level of connection uh, uh, to, to your members looking for multiple opportunities uh, to be uh, you know have a, a prominent place in the community um, supporting uh, the community events local schools, Teaching about co-ops uh, to the members so that they understand. Now, one of the things that you know technology allows us to do, and I know that that Cherryland does this, and I'd be curious as to you know what went into the decision-making uh, process. Uh, you do electronic voting uh, and paper voting where people can vote uh, at the annual meeting. So I'd be just curious as to. I think that's a great thing because that allows people whether they can attend the annual meeting or not, to participate uh, in our democracy, which is critically important. So I'd be curious to hear from from you, Tony or Rachel, what went into that decision to move to electronic balloting and and how has that affected your participation levels.
2: Well, the core desire was to make it easier to vote. You know, we've gone through a transition of 14, 15 years ago. You had to show up at the annual meeting to vote. Uh, and then that obviously wasn't good enough, so we we sent out a, a ballot to every member in our monthly magazine, and we've done that for a number of years. This year is the first time we went to online voting in just in a simple attempt to take our voting to another level and to reduce any complaints as well because th- we always get complaints that it's difficult to vote, I lost my ballot, how do I get another ballot? And this way... The, we, we eliminate a lot of the complaints.
0: And I, and I think another thing that does for us is, and, I, and I'll use myself as an example, I have people send me things that require me to put things in the mail, and I never do them. It's just, I don't, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but the, it, that step is really, like, too much for me. <laughs> but if you give me something where I can click in an email, I will, I will always do it. And I'm actually a member of a food co-op in our town, and this is the first year they also added electronic voting, and it's the first year I've voted in their election. So I do think it, it, it might draw in a different some different voters than have, have previously mm-hmm. voted in our elections.
2: Yeah, we're in, we're in the mid, middle of our election cycle right now. We're, we're taking online votes, paper ballots, until June 14th. Yep. And um, so the jury is still out on how well online voting is going to work for us. Uh, we've exceeded last year's vote total when we had just paper ballots already, so that's encouraging. But we just don't know how big it'll go. We, we were excited in, initially because we did a survey recently. We offered everybody a $100 bill a chance at a hundred dollar drawing if they've completed a survey. We got five thousand people to do a ten minute survey. And wow. so we're we're not at two thousand votes yet and we offered the same hundred dollars to vote and voting takes less than two minutes. Uh, so yeah. I, I don't know what it is, survey versus voting, but we're we're not seeing similar numbers quite yet.
0: And that's something, Adam, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on. Like, I, I, I totally agree with you about making voting accessible, but there's still something else there that, I, I don't know, is it apathy that, that leads co-op members not to vote even when you make it highly accessible?
1: Uh, well, uh, a couple of points. So I'm also a member of a, of a group called CBS Consulting Co-op. There's 35 of us around the country that have formed a co-op of consultants. And, and we've had this discussion among our group Uh, Do we want to simply encourage voting just for voting's sake, you know, just to increase the numbers, Uh, or do we want to increase the the awareness and the quality of the members' knowledge uh, in in the process, So, not being familiar with what you've done uh, so far? You know, one of the things that I think that we need to do along with making it easier for people to vote, and certainly electronic voting makes it easier, I think we need to, you know, look to educate people why it's important uh, that they vote. And from my perspective, I used to serve as a a federal lobbyist, uh, and uh, I no longer do that. It turned out to be a fairly frustrating profession uh, (laughs) towards towards the end of it, Uh, and in part because I think people are, are somewhat disheartened uh... by the effect the, you know it doesn't matter if i vote you know it's all the, the same cast of characters and things like that so to the extent that, that we can educate people about the importance and if there are competitive elections with people that have different viewpoints uh... all of those kinds of things will will help to to bring out uh... interest and i will not feel over the long terms what the co-ops can do at the local level is re energize democracy and show people that voting does matter and participating does count uh, and hopefully re-energize that not just at the, at the co-op level, but for their communities and for the
0: nation as a whole. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really uh, important point. And we were actually just saying earlier we'd had a conver- had some conversations with members, and when we asked them why they didn't vote, they say, "Oh, well, you know, I, I'm I'm happy, right? My my bills, what I, yeah. where I want what I want it to be, you keep my lights on, and and that's a not that needs a vote too, right? A vote to say I yeah. I like what you're doing is is an important is, is is an important vote.
1: You know, and if that's the kind of feedback you're getting, you know, I can just see some sort of, you know, messaging going on your bill or on your website. Uh, Hey, are you really happy with us? Well, then vote. You know, that's a way of expressing your happiness. We'd like to see, you know, the numbers, you know, play into what they're telling you uh, as the reason why you're not voting uh, and and see if we can, you know, shake some trees and, and... Get some folks excited about that as well, and the fact that you've got I believe it's Oriana Food Co-op in, in your community that's doing electronic voting too. That's great. Uh, if there's crossover members and you can promote each other's elections, you know if that makes sense. I, I don't know if it does or not, uh, but that's one of the things that I really try and do when I work with with individual co-ops is look for other co-ops that are in their their community uh, to see if we can build uh... some connections so that we can further educate people about this business model that's one of the things that, uh, that continued for us, that we don't teach about co-ops in in, in the school system mm-hmm. and at any level from you know grade school to graduate school uh... so most people don't know about co ops so when they start working at a co-op or shopping at a co-op or become a credit union member or electric co-op member this, this concept is, is relatively new to them uh, so we, it's incumbent upon us, I think, to, to educate the members as, as best we can, and to the extent that's possible. Uh, last year, for the first year, and I'll be doing it again this uh, this fall, I teach a course on cooperatives at, the, at a local university here in Fredericksburg, Virginia, University of Mary Washington, uh, with a colleague, Richard Rochelle. And uh, I'm encouraging people all across the country. Uh, I'm really not that special. Uh, you know, if you want to be an adjunct professor. Uh, I'd be happy to share my this uh, with anyone who's uh, who has that passion to, for teaching. I we need to do a better job of uh, educating uh, people at all levels of life, but especially young people, um, about how special this call business model is.
2: What do the young people grab onto in your class?
1: You well, well, it was interesting. Uh, that several of them were mad. Uh, they were seniors, and they were upset that they would have. Had gone through almost four years of college and never heard about co ops and these were business majors uh, and what what really connects with uh, with uh, the folks was the fact that we are what is a popular term these days a socially responsible business in the fact that we answer uh, to our members and the diversity of co ops uh, you know the fact that they, they exist in you know developing countries and in industrialized countries and really serve every sector of the economy, uh, with the exception of the military. Uh, there's a co-op in, in some, so just the breadth. Uh, and, the you know, in this country alone, it's $3 trillion in assets. Over 29,000 co-ops uh, exist in this country, serving, you know, more than half the population of the country. Uh, so they just they, they had no idea about the size and scope uh, of, of co-ops uh, and our impact uh, on a day-to-day basis.
0: That's that's a really cool stat. (laughs) Um, So just maybe shift a little to talk about board governance, I guess. But one of the areas that we, our members, talk to us about a lot is transparency. So you know, to the how good of a job are we doing of helping them to understand what's going on at the co-op? And we do quite a bit. You know, we've got things like this podcast, our magazine, blog. We're available, but we don't invite our members to come into our board meeting and stay for the board meeting. They can come in and give input, but they don't, we don't have open board meetings. Um, I guess I, I kind of want to get your opinion on what, do, what, what should co-ops be doing for transparency? What are co-ops doing? Where, what, is the, what is the right thing?
1: Well, I, you know, one of our principles is autonomy and independence, right? So I, I try not to prescribe to any co-op that you have to do this. Because I think that that would be violating one of that one of our principles. Uh, but from my experience working, you know, around the country and to some degree around the world with, with different types of co-ops, I have seen what I would call meeting practices that that seem to to work well. Uh, and if the members at Cherryland are okay without the the board meetings being totally open, well then and they're happy with it, then that's your right and and, and obligation to to answer to your members. From my perspective, I don't see what the what the harm is in keeping board meetings open for the entire meeting. Of course, if there's an, a topic that has to come up with executive session, then you know personnel matters, things like that. Of course, you always have to maintain um, that ability. Uh, Most people, you know, are not that interested (laughs) in the individual board meetings because, let's face it, they're probably not the most uh, exciting uh, uh, type of activity, although they're critically important. And I think if the co-op is doing a good job of attracting a diversity of members, I think that's another area um, where co-op boards, of all types of co-ops, this is not unique um, to electric co-ops, uh, have to do a better job of reaching out to all the different communities uh, that they serve, and the way I've been putting this lately is that a lot of folks will say to me, "Well, our process is, is you know very open. Uh, maybe it's just a, a few signatures, you know, twenty-five or a hundred signatures on a petition, or you know, it's it's very easy to become a candidate, uh, and that's what I would call sort of the all welcome approach. Mm-hmm. You know, that anyone who wants interested, and I think we need to go from the all welcome approach. To actively inviting um, that, looking look at our community. What is the demographic makeup of our community? That's a core question. I think every co-op should know the answer uh, to. And when I say the demographics, I mean the the ethnic uh, makeup uh, and uh, age and income, uh, all the kinds of things that we can easily acquire from from census uh, data. And then look at our boards and look at our employees and, and do we match up? And it doesn't have to be a one for one match because that would probably be very difficult. But in general, are we matching up well? Um, so that people in the community will say, yeah, you know, that board looks like me. Uh, I can, I can see that they're representative of me Uh, because I think with, with each individual, there's power. And to the extent that we exclude any individuals from our co-op, whether willfully or just because of culturally, we've just always done it that way. We we deny ourselves some power uh, and political power, uh, community power, which are critically important for the, you know, the livelihood and and, uh, for the co-op to thrive uh, over the longer term. So uh, our board governance issues are critical to our long-term success and one that I'm glad that's getting, you know, more scrutiny uh, these
2: days. Here's a problem I have with the transparency issue you mentioned and letting everybody in the board meeting. I I watch public meetings where everybody does get to come in, county government, local government, township government. Uh, And I feel like the board members, the elected officials, don't have the most robust conversation possible when everybody's looking at them under a microscope. I've watched special interest groups pack the room intimidate uh, elected officials and essentially get what they were after. And I feel like if, if people are outside the room and the people, the, the entire membership elects to be in that room can have a robust, honest discussion with each other outside of the microscope that they make better decisions in the best interest of the, all the members rather than a special interest group packed into the room.
1: Uh, Tony, I I think that is a very fair and valid comment. And uh, as I said, if your members are comfortable with that approach and, and you enunciate it just that way and they're happy with it and it's working for for you, you and all the folks at Cherryland, then that's great. I would not recommend uh, changing it. Uh, there are, I think, the opposite also occurs when when people feel like they're excluded and they can't. Uh, come to a meeting, and then mm-hmm. folks in the boardroom, uh, uh, their interests uh, continue to narrow over time,
2: yeah.
1: um, so that they become more um, self-serving uh, in their viewpoint to a narrow band of the members, uh, and not opening t- you know, to the wider spectrum of members. Yeah, so I, I,
2: yeah, yeah. I, I get that totally. I, I understand yeah. that. I, I wish there was something in the middle. I haven't found that middle point of those two arguments. Although yeah,
1: although one maybe, thing- well, maybe maybe it's you know, once a year, twice a year you announce this is gonna be an open board meeting. Right? Mm-hmm. Or just this is gonna be the one where we're gonna throw the doors open. I don't know. I'm just thinking mm-hmm. off the, the top of my head. Or, you know, you wait until there's enough people who say, Hey, we want your board meetings to be open and if that never occurs, well then you know you know, there's a certain mentality of, of it of it, if it ain't uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also another mentality where if it ain't broke, break it, so that you can fix it, right? right. You know, that's where you're going to disrupt your own business before someone else disrupts it uh, for you. Great, uh, great another point. book the title I really like is uh, "Sacred Cows Make the Best Hamburgers." Right? <laughs> I uh, prefer I prefer you, steak. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, the the idea that you know I I I think this is what it falls upon you, Tony, as as the CEO General Manager. And on your board, you know, you're you're uh, on the bridge of the ship, right? You're looking yeah. out as to what the horizon, what's coming up, mm-hmm. what changes are going to happen in this industry that are going to affect the members. Uh, and as long as you're, you know, you're steadfast in that and you're thinking about how you're going to change and evolve so that you can continue to serve the members and doing a good job, well, then, then hats off to you and keep doing it. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so we, we don't have a ton of time left, but there's one thing you said, Adam, that I want to just follow up on because I think it's a really important point, and that is trying to get um, get more interest from diverse groups to to want to run for our board. One of the ideas that that we've been throwing around a little bit here we ha- we're not quite it's not quite finalized yet, so I guess it's not ready for the presses, so I shouldn't say it publicly, but I'm going to <laughs> is creating an emerging coops co-op leaders program where we could have some sort of a program where people who might have shown an interest or people that maybe we identify as someone, we'd love to see someone with that skill set or that background on our board could participate in a, a program where it introduces them to existing board members, creates mentor relationships, introduces them to what the co-op is working on, you know, that that kind of thing so that they better understand who we are and what we're doing and are maybe better prepared than to run for our board. Because I do I do agree with you. I think there are a lot of really smart, capable, awesome people out there who we need to find them and cultivate them and and, and build up their interest in running for our board.
1: Yeah, I, that sounds uh, terrific. And I have some experience. There was an emerging co-op leaders program um, back when I worked for the National Cooperative Business Association that would bring in you know, primarily younger people um, to, their, to the meetings so that they could see what, what co-ops uh, are all about. I think that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Uh, I would say, overall, with the two most mature consumer co-op sectors, credit unions and electric co-ops, that the board generally skew older. uh, And the older I get, uh, the more I appreciate that, so uh, (laughs) I'm okay with that. But I also think that we need to be reaching out, and there's no reason why we cannot have you know, 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 35-year-olds on, on our co-op boards as well. You know, you, you only have to be 25 and you can be elected to be a member of Congress. I think you're qualified to serve on a board of an electric co-op as well. And the other thing that that does, and especially, you know, I know your area is a little bit less rural than, than some of your sister co-ops uh, in the state and around the country. But if we get a young person to serve on our board, uh, I'm, I feel pretty good that they're not going to be moving away. And rural flight is a, is an issue that, that you know, ops have to deal with. But we get young people to serve on our boards, they're going to stay in the community, and they're going to care about building the community in a, in a way that's going to keep the, the co-ops strong for the longer term. Uh, so, yeah, I, anything that we can do to encourage uh, people to take a look uh, at the at, at the co-op uh, business model and being interested is great. And the fact that you've got a sister if we go up in the community and you know, maybe that could be some cross training and cross, uh, uh, you know, sector meetings and things like that. That sounds like a, another possible opportunity too.
0: Awesome. Well, so that we, we're we're right up on running out of time, but uh, we always like to end our podcast with co-op fun facts. So, Adam, did you bring us a co-op fun fact?
1: Well, I mentioned a couple uh, before, but I'm just going to mention you know this, this 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 fun co-op that I think is out there that is just doing something cool. It's called Pedal People. Uh, in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, and it's a worker co-op of primarily young people, and what they do is they pick up um, garbage uh, and recycling and compost uh, from people in the community, uh, and uh, all of these folks uh, own the co-op, so uh, they've been very successful. They now have a contract with the city uh, as well. Uh, And So just the the idea out there is that if you've got any uh, listeners to this podcast that have a business idea, uh, they should think about uh, starting it as a as a co-op uh, as well. So, uh, uh, thank you so much for the the opportunity to to share a few thoughts with you, and, and congratulations on all the good work um, that you're doing at Cherryland. Uh, you are certainly one of uh, the my star co-ops out there that I talk about. So, I really appreciate uh, all the effort that you put into thinking
2: about uh, being
1: a good co-op.
0: We, we appreciate hearing that. Tony, did you bring a fun fact? Yeah,
2: let me get the grease from Adam off my face. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate it. Appreciate the compliment. Um, we talk about 900 co-ops uh, serving 47 states. What three states don't have electric co-ops in them?
1: Ah, okay. Those... That would be kinetic- Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. Jesus. That oh, would be correct. New
2: gold star yeah. goes yep. to Adam. Yep, you get the A for the day. I think they're still getting their electricity from King George, maybe, but yeah, right. it's that's not a, a co-op. Yeah. So, uh, but,
1: uh, hey, there's hope. You know, uh, when I started working for co ops uh, 25 years ago, uh, Hawaii did not have an electric co-op, but they do now. Yep,
2: so, so there's hope. Uh,
1: so there is hope. We Absolutely. might get
2: Rhode Island yet.
1: <laughs> exactly. Oh, great.
0: Well, my, my fun fact is actually about Oriana. We were talking about them earlier. They're a food co-op in our area with about a seven thousand with about seven thousand members, and I wanted to share a few cool stats from their 2016 annual report. In 2016, they sold 3.1 million dollars in local products from 166 local producers. So big economic impact here in our community, and at this in that same year, they donated almost 36 thousand pounds of food to local food rescues. So just a, a great. Um, co-op community partner here and and one that we're lucky to have in our community. So uh, Tony and Adam, I want to thank you both for taking the time to sit down with us today and you know, the the co-op business model is what actually attracted me to this job and I only fell in love with the electric side after that and I think it's so important that we continue to protect that and I'm glad to know that there are people like you working hard to do that for our members. So thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks Adam. Thank you.